0: Let me do a quick review um, on a few things. From Revelation, chapter 1, I would say uh, all eyes on Jesus. We're told in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, catch this, things which must shortly take place or quickly take place. They'll happen quickly when they start, it'll be quick. And notice this part. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servants. And so God, God gave Jesus this, this message. He wants to show you and I something. He wants us to be aware and ready and alert. When these things start taking place, you know, be aware. Um, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we had Listen Church, where he's speaking to the historical church. The geographic church, basically, the church through all the ages up to this generation and until the rapture of the church, all ears tuned to what God has to say. You know, as He spoke specifically and repeated it in in each one of the seven churches. He who has an ear to hear, what? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, what God is saying to his people. And, and I'm hoping you're seeing it as we go through, that we want to we know the times, we want to see what's happening around us, but we want to know what the Holy Spirit's speaking to us. The greatest need in the world today is for God's people to know his word in such a way they apply it in his power for his glory. Can we agree that really is the greatest need, that, that we would be instruments that the Holy Spirit could function and, and accomplish his purposes through, and we would not resist or we would not hinder. We would have a sensitivity to his voice in such a way that that prompting, we would call it, or that inclination or whatever we would how we'd say it, when he's leading us, we know it and we're willing to follow, we're willing to go. And I believe it's a hard thing to discern. I believe you can have it in seasons and understand his voice clearly, and other times it can be almost like void. And I think part of that is because you're, the flesh and the spirit are at enmity against each other. And there's going to be at times that we are, we are in tune. You know what, when you're most in tune, ironically, when, when you're in the greatest trials, it's weird, isn't it? And, you know, that time is, is the time we go, man, I don't know, man, why, is it, why am I going through this? What's this? But you're, you've got no other resources. You've got no other place to go. You've got no other way to reason through your trial, your difficulty. And you're more receptive to his work, his, his voice. Is that a, can we agree? It, 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 ought, it doesn't have to be that way. It just ends up being that way. And uh, I look at my life and go, man, I want to learn to be receptive w- without... Uh, intense trials. I'm I'm learning to be receptive in the trials, but maybe he's got a lot to say in the stillness of the morning. Maybe he's got a lot to say in other times. So I just want to encourage you, you know, till we are raptured, tune your ears to what God has to say. And then Revelation chapter 4, we can see where it says, in a sense, come on in. You look in verse 1 of Revelation 4. After these things, speaking of the things of chapter 1, the things of the church in chapters 2 and 3, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was the trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. We've seen in verse 1 of chapter 1, he wants to show us things. And now we see again in this transition where the church... I believe, will be raptured somewhere between the last verse of chapter 3 and the second verse of chapter 4. There's some things we're going to see in chapter 6, we also observed in chapter 5, that show us that the church is there. The church is not in the world today, at that time. It is today. And so I would just make an emphasis, chapter 4, verse 1, I will show you things which must take place. These things are going to happen. Now that leads us up, of course, as we looked at on Sunday to chapter 5, which was heavenly worship that is out of this world. Literally, it, it is in heaven. You know, that throne room that we were introduced to in chapter four and the worship and everything happened in there. And then, you know, the f- chapter five where there's more worship because the lamb is the one who receives the, the um, scrolls. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is worthy to pronounce judgment on an, un- on an unrepentant world. And so... Are you catching that? We're here in chapter 1, where the church, spoken of in chapters 2 and 3, the rapture, which we'll look at the end of our study today, will take place, and then after these things, the things of the church, then the rapture takes place, we're now in heaven in chapter 4. And so chapter 4 on through, um, well actually it'll carry through to chapter 19, will be things taking place on the earth, while we are not on the earth. Hopefully, that makes sense to you. So, what we be, see in chapter 6, beginning there in verse 1, now we've seen Sunday in 5, there's this worship set, this amazing experience, and, and they're recognizing all the inhabitants of heaven are recognizing Jesus and he's worthy. And now it says in verse 1 of chapter 6 Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it, had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine." Continuing in verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the vo- voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, "How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth?" Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while, a little while longer. "'until both the number of their fellow servants "'and their brethren who would be killed "'as they were, were completed. "'I looked when he opened the sixth seal, "'and behold, there was a great earthquake, "'and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, "'and the moon became like blood, "'and the stars of heaven fell to the earth "'as a fig tree drops its late figs "'when it's shaken by a mighty wind. "'Then the sky receded as a scroll "'when it is rolled up, "'and every mountain and island "'was moved out of its place.' And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? I'll just say right now, I'm glad I will be looking at this and not living through this. Um, some people, generally male, generally masculine, generally too over the top in testosterone, have this thought: like, well, I'll come to Christ during the tribulation. You know, kind of like. Have you ever noticed there's just some people, some of us, I think more men than anything else. I don't know. It'd be kind of fun to go through that. Could you reread it? You really want to go back and just start, you know, thinking that through. Let's go ahead and go right back to verse 1, and I'm going to walk through this. You know, um, like I say, we're going to come back and look in the end of, of the timing of the rapture and why we can hold on to that, that truth and that position. Um, verse 1, John, while he's in heaven, is instructed to turn his attention to what's about to take place on earth, and he's told there, you know, come and see. I I, I can't. You know, place in my mind and my imagination, limited by the details we have, just how all that unfolds. You know how he can peer. You know because he's looking from one location to another, but he's looking through history as well. He's he's in the future, looking back, and he's and he's be able to see this. And as this event actually unfolds in its timing, as I mentioned, we will be up there with him. So he's taken back. He looks and notice in verse two. Um, it says, I, I looked and behold. So he was invited to come and see. I don't know if it involved a physical moving or the position the way he was looking, whatever. But I want to, know that, I want to mention this. Obedience is a part of heaven as well. There was instruction there and in direction. So my thought would be, we should learn how to do this while we're here. Okay? You know, there really is a simplicity to that. You know, the struggle you face, the struggle I face, is learning how to obey the Lord. We have instruction. Rare do we say, I didn't know what he wanted me to do. Now, we may word that, but we we aren't really prefacing that properly. I didn't know what he wanted me to do. What we meant to say is, I don't want to listen. I don't want to really know, because then I can play ignorant, so to speak. We would never say that to someone else, but that's actually what we do so many times. Instead of just pausing and going, Lord, help me practice your word. Psalm forty six ten. Be still, and know that I am God. He said, and I will be exalted among the people. And so, learning to just be still and receive and respond, that there's that element of obedience that comes when you understand the authority over you. If He's your Lord, He's your authority over the authority over you. Understanding that you know this actually is where my joy comes from. There's joy in obedience. If you've noticed, I hope you've noticed that. There's something about that reality that when he is leading and instructing us, even equipping us and empowering us to do what he directs us to do, there's an inner peace that, that medication won't fix. There's an inner peace that, that it just, it just it changes you. And you start experiencing it. And I just want to encourage you, you know, the element of obedience is so powerful, so important as we learn to practice it. Now notice it says here in this verse, in this first portion, verse two, that there's a, uh, I looked and behold a white horse and there was a person on it. We know, I believe it's uh, chapter 19. Yeah, or actually, yeah, chapter, I'll find it here. Later in the book, <laughs> um, I guess I'm, I'm, not, I'm not seeing it where I thought it was. Anyway, Jesus comes in on a, on a great white horse, but it's, this isn't him on this one. The color of the horse doesn't mean that you can identify the rider. We can identify based on what we see. And so what we see here is this white horse, and I believe as you can see what's happening in this first seal, uh, this judgment, Um, and how it pairs together with the following three horsemen, um, that this is someone else. And I I would present to you it's the Antichrist posing as the Savior, proclaiming peace to the Jews. So in looking at Scripture and and kind of letting it merge together and studying it and looking at it and studying it and, and looking at it, seems pretty obvious that the rapture of the church will take place before the seven-year tribulation period. So you think what's going to happen, you know, on this planet when millions of people are removed instantaneously, and, and, and the chaos economically and socially and all the things that are going to be in kind of a turmoil. Well, when that happens... The Antichrist will come on the scene. Actually, he'll be, he won't be known until the one who's restraining is taken out of the way, we're told in First Thessalonians. So once the, whole, the presence of the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is removed, then this Antichrist comes into play, and he actually has a special he works a deal with the, the Jews. And so what he's doing, and what happens is he's just proclaiming peace to the Jews. And that's what's going to be taking place. But interestingly enough, he seems to bring order to the chaos, and I would suggest that chaos could have culminated or even been caused by the rapture of the church. And so now things are in turmoil, and here this one comes. And he he promotes himself as a peace agent, but what he does is produce war and violence. I was looking and doing some study, and let me read to you an interesting thing about the peace symbol coming out of the 60s, but if you've seen it on the back of a Volkswagen van, you know it actually goes you know, circle and then down and then two bars off the side. The peace symbol, a broken upside down cross. To Roman Emperor Nero, who hated and persecuted the early Christians, it meant destruction of Christianity. Revived in the 60s as a sign for peace, it now symbolizes a utopian hope for a new age of global peace and earth-centered unity. And so aren't we living in the age where the, the peace is like... So there's, it's, a, it's an undercurrent. Everybody wants peace. Everybody's looking forward to it. So when this agent of presumed peace, because the, the Antichrist will have power, is on the scene, I think people are just going to gravitate to it because they're going to try to sort out the chaos. Now, continuing in verse 2, what we see is a bow. Now, a bow is a weapon of war. So here this Antichrist is going to come, and he has this bow. And I mentioned the piece. He's going to, he's going to be a smooth talker, a certain amount of charisma, a persuasion, a natural draw for people. Um, but yet he has other things in mind. It says that he will go out conquering... He was given a crown and was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The crown he's received is not the crown of dominion or of a king or of high authority. It's it's just the crown of a, a one who would win like one of the, uh, the the like like the Olympic games. It was actually just a, it's a just a, it was just a, a symbol of of his position, but not of power, of authority. Well, the Antichrist posing as the Christ as the as the, as the Messiah under this peace, peace, peace mode, is actually going to be waging war and conquering. And so, as I've mentioned, without the presence of the church, where the restraining power of the Holy Spirit comes from, then the Antichrist begins to conquer. I mentioned it that way instead of saying that once the Holy Spirit was removed, because I think we understand the Holy Spirit won't be removed in the sense of he's of the the Triune Godhead, the triunity of God, who is omniscient, all present, but what he his influencing power, his role at that time in god 's big picture will be to empower the church to restrain evil we 're going to go to that later in first thessalonians so he 's restraining evil, and when he that role is done and he removes that presence, that power from the world, and we know that the Holy Spirit indwells us. He's empowered the church, the individuals, the people. So we know that he's gonna, we're going to be removed, and then his focus, he will do different things. Think, think uh, Old Testament a little bit. It was Samson who did not know that the Lord had departed from him. So in other words, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit at a time... And he didn't know that the Holy Spirit left, but the Holy Spirit left him. That was different because it's a different dispensation. We know King Saul, the Holy Spirit come upon him and then departed. So he didn't depart like not there at all. We can agree with that, I hope. His influence, his power, his role, what he's doing. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be a helper, a paracletos, a comforter, and that he would guide you into all truth and bring to your remembrance the things that Jesus said. So on this side of the cross, we see the Holy Spirit working in that fashion, leading us and guiding us in truth and revealing things, and he will, we functionally are the restrainer in a physical sense. Does that make sense? When you are sharing the gospel, when you are resisting the forces of evil, you're hindering the advancement of the antichrist or, or the, the devil's position. The antichrist isn't being hindered by us and he can't come yet. That's going to come perfectly in God's prophetic timeline. But I just want to realize, help us to realize, hey, there's, there's, we have a role while we're here, and we're empowered to fulfill that role. Now, the antichrist you want to consider, and I think you see if you study this much, is the opposite of Jesus in his attitude, his actions, and his heart. Jesus brought peace. What does the antichrist bring? He brings war. So let's move on. If you would with me to the second seal. Found there in verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. So remember, there's four creatures around the throne. This one is now saying, hey, come check this one out. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Many people struggle with this chapter we're reading because many people, in our culture especially, and, and it makes sense, are empathetic. They have empathy, a concern of what people are going through. They have compassion and, and concern for what will happen to other people. But they're not judicial. In other words, they're not just. They don't have, they're not all-knowing and they don't even weigh the scales. God has actually been so patient in presenting the hope of Jesus Christ. So that we know whenever someone chooses to reject Christ, we're told, I believe in John 15, that God basically pursues us to the uttermost. And so here we have a time in human history when those who are living on this planet are a part individually deciding to be a part of a Christ-rejecting world. They basically said, I'll do it my way. I don't want your way. I, I can get by without you. And the results of that is that they're going to they're experience what man can produce and the opposite of, the, of God will generate. In other words, I don't want good. I don't want God. I don't want this Jesus stuff. You Christians can just do your thing and get, get out of are kind of a pain. And when people have that mindset, they've made a decision to do something. Everything opposite of God is what they've chose to say they want. Isn't it ironic that people always, before they're born again, they always question the justice of God. They never say it that way, but they say it this way. Well, if God is love, then how come this? How come this person died? How come there's evil in the world? How come this happened over there? How come those people killed, got killed? And how come if God is just? It's not because someone's got an honest question per se. It's because they're saying, you know, if, if if I'm going to follow this God, he's got to be the way I want him to be. And, and that's rejecting Christ. And so here what we have is we see this, this judgment coming, this second seal opened, and the details, a fiery red horse, reds associated with terror and destruction. Chapter 12, there's a red dragon. Chapter 17, there's a red beast. The Antichrist here in verse 2 will lead the red horsemen, or have authority over him, in war, provoking people to kill one another. You think it's going to be hard to persuade people to go to war in the world we live in right now? No, no, no. They can, they can go to battle, government authorities, or go to battle over where you park your truck up in Canada. You know, I mean, you just think about it, they're willing to like eliminate people over some of those most bizarre things, and that is according to Ecclesiastes, and we know it to be true, there's nothing new under the sun, nothing new. And so we're going to see, you know, people are going to be provoked, it's a time we won't be in, I can't emphasize that enough, but we will be above, we'll be in heaven, and this is going to be happening on earth. Now, here's a dilemma I have, maybe you too. If we're up there and we see this, but there's no sorrow in heaven, how's that work out? Because you ain't going to be happy looking down on that if you could see it. Do you see what I'm saying? So there might be that element of the knowledge of it, but then there's also, in the presence of God, the knowledge of his judicial nature, of his perfect justice and his overwhelming love. So I'm still... I've only been working on it for about 32 years, but I'm still working on it. I'm still working out how that all reconciles and how that fits and and everything. But this is still going to take place. Let's look in the next one. We find in verses 5 and 6, the third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. I believe what we see firsthand there is, uh, well, for one, dark, the black horse, but he's bringing another uh, judgment. He had a pair of scales in his hand. Many believe that it's uh, 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 an unjust or an inaccurate scales basically, because there's going to be inequity in the world, and we see that from the next part. Um, There's going to be famine and economic ruin for all except the wealthy. They'll be affected by it, but let me explain how that works out. Um, Realize this. War ravages land, agreed? When there's war, war ruins crops. It pollutes the planet, and if this unfolds, as many scholars believe, it has the potential to be a, a nuclear holocaust, a nuclear war, and we know the residual of nuclear war, right? We have a little bit of a hint of some of that, even with uh, you know what we've done in our own testing and what we've done, you know what has been done where bombs have been dropped. So you see, your whole, you know, your 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 plants, your your agriculture, even your animals, it, it ravishes the land. A denarius is about a day's wages, and so you'll work all day just to buy a loaf of bread. So those who are here. There's going to be economic ruin, lead, leading literally to famine. It says that, but um, do not harm the oil and the wine, which is interesting. It was a basic uh, necessity in, in that um, environment or that culture, but I think it would barely be in the necessity category. The bread represents absolute necessity. It's possible this is meaning you know, the goods that are consumed by the rich would be more of the oil and the wine. That kind of a, a reference point. Um, or it basically, you know, you spend everything on the bare basics and have nothing, nothing left for the oil and wine. Why would that be? Well, supply and demand. See, there's a higher supply of these two, oil and wine, but there's not a high supply of the b- very basics. So we see that there's going to be this scarcity, this uh, famine on the land. So So far, what we've had is people are killing each other there's this world leader that brings peace, or seems to, but he's actually conquering. And now there's not, after the war and the elements that will continue, they're not going to stop, there's going to be other aspects of them. And then we have, you know, this, this scarcity on the earth. Leading us to, to verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, on the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. And the power was given to them over a fourth to kill or given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. And so a fourth of the people on earth will die. Now I don't know if you want to count that from the first seal to now, it doesn't matter, there's still a fourth of the people. You what want to take a you to throw you some numbers on what a fourth of the people at our current population would be? Approximately just under two billion. Two billion people will die at this time. That, that you can't even wrap your mind around that, honestly. When we look at, at tragedies, uh natural events, and disasters, uh plagues, um wars. And in in this one thing, two billion people will die. Notice how they will they will die by way of the sword. We see also it says that they will, they'll die from hunger, starvation. They will die, I would say, suggest to you in the next part, um, with death, with natural causes accelerated by global stress or global conditions. Um, I believe stress and uh, the strain of living in this time, many will, many will die. And you notice the next part that it does say, and beasts of the earth. The beasts of the earth, you know, they'll die from that. What would that mean? Well, the simplicity is, is hungry predators will eat what's available. And those that are alive are, right now, so in the west where we live, we have some pretty open stuff. We could call it wilderness, but it would barely qualify in my book. But there's predators there, but everyone I've met from cougars, bears, and a couple of the other lightweights, um, they don't care about you. They run away from you faster than you run away from them. Not that I've clocked them, but I know the distance is created quick. I don't think that fear that was put in them when their ancestors exited the ark, if you've read, you know what I'm talking about. So that fear that's in them, it's going to be overridden. The fear of man will be overridden by the drive for food. It's just a natural thing that will happen. So it, it's interesting because you know you start thinking about what is going on in this world that we're not in. It's, like, it's pretty intense. It's hard for me to go through this with somebody and have them say, "Eh, we'll see. I'll, I'll take my chances." Dude, don't don't ever buy a lottery ticket because your odds are bad for you. <laughs> you just don't know how to look at the odds, right? You know. So let's moving on. Where we see here is it uh, now goes to the fifth seal. We just looked at the what's referred to as the four horsemen, and now in verse nine, nine through eleven, I won't read those. I'm just going to work through with them. The scene shifts from chaos on earth back to heaven. Those who became Christians during the tribulation period thus far and died because of their faith in Christ, you know, it's going to address their their testimony. Their testimony is a. Um, a record, a report, a witness. You know, you ever, you know, like in our court system, a witness testifies. They give their testimony. They tell of what they know to be true in theory. Well, this is their, their, the testimony of those who became Christians during the tribulation period. Some will come to Christ during the tribulation period, and they will die. It will be more intense. I mean, right now, you know, the... the uh, there are more martyrs probably in the last 10 years than, I mean, you can look into, like think, uh, Voice of the Martyrs, and there's a few other sources that give you some of these real-life, real-world numbers. You know, witness, or testimony speaks of, you know, a, a witness of martyrdom is the root word, martyr. And so right now we have, you know, people dying like crazy, but it won't compare to what's going to happen in the tribulation period. And that's why I caution people to think, well, I'll just take my chances later. Like, No. Trust me, that's not a good idea. It says in verse nine, when he when he opened the seal, those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had held, they these are not people who just died of natural causes. It could be, but they're, it's specific. These here, this group under the altar, that there were ones who who died for for the cause of Christ. I, I believe, as you know, later um, we will read that you know you have to have this mark. Remember referred to as the mark of the beast. What's that mark of the beast enable you to do or re- be required that you have in order to buy or sell? And so to do that, you then also end up, you, it goes on, and you're, you've got to worship the the beast that the mark represents, and Christians won't do that. Even in this time, they will say no, and they will literally be put to death for not following the order that the... New world order, which is actually an old world order that started in the Garden of Eden. So you see here, uh, there in verse 9, um, they were slain for the word of God because they held it and, and their and they, the testimony of it. Verse 10, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So because of their cry, it seems... You know, I mean, obviously they understand that they're in heaven, and yet those who had murdered them are still on earth. And how long is this going to be? Is that a cry of a Christian contemporarily? Is it a cry of a Christian or a follower of Jehovah, an Old Testament saint, as they left Egypt and wandered in the wilderness? Isn't that a constant cry, Lord, when will you avenge? How long will this go on? How long will this person get away with what they're doing because it's ungodly, it's untruthful, it's, it's demonic, it's, it's evil, it's wicked? How long is this going to go? I believe probably every one of us in this room have questioned that in some form or another. How long is this going to be? Now, this group is specific, and we, we can see that it's, they were specifically you know, martyred during the tribulation period ascended to heaven, and then speak to God, how much longer before those who killed us, before this season, this dispensation comes to an end. Notice God's response, verse 11, then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them, they should rest a little while get, or longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed." Once again, it's hard to process that. So more need to die before this is resolved. Well, it's not that they need to die. That's not going to be the, 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 the accomplishment. It's going to be a result of a Christ-rejecting world. There's con- it's not, it's not time yet. Can, you know, we struggle, I'm pretty confident everyone struggles with this as well, with the timing of God. We can accept the nature of God. We learn that we understand the ways of God bit by bit and piece by piece. But the timing of God—how come it has to be longer? And here he's telling them at this point in the in the chronology, at this point in the tribulation period, you know, they're they're saying, "How you know how long is this going to be?" And he's and notice what he said to them. First of all, he give them a white robe, which is his righteousness. They're clothed in his righteousness as the representation. And as he gives him that white robe, he says, rest a little while. I wonder if he says rest because they were restless. Just wondering. You know, there's a lot on their mind. I don't understand the whole dynamic because it seems like they carried a little bit of this world up into heaven. But there's this pleasant engagement that they have. And you can see how he just says, let's just rest a while until your fellow servants, until this, till the completion. And he could even see it if you want to kind of stretch it out on some of these terms. Until the time of the Gentiles has been completed, until this time when no one else, there won't be nobody else coming to Christ, even in this tribulation period, then will take place. They were martyred through torturous ways, and they now rest in the throne of heaven, and they're waiting for the final judgment upon an unrepentant world. We see in verse twelve: I looked when He opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. So we just, we are now back, we were with the martyred saints there in the throne room, So and now he's taking John back, having us look back to the wrath that's being poured out on earth. Everything stirred up on earth, this natural calamity increases. It's a natural calamity, but supernaturally induced. Cataclysmic events caused by God Himself. You know, he, there's this this great earthquake. We've had multiple earthquakes, and if you if you look, even in this latter part of this chapter, and you see how this unfolds, and you you let that kind of lay over or compare to Matthew twenty four, you see a lot of parallels. But notice here, you know, these events are going to happen. Uh, the earth, a great earthquake. The sun become black as sackcloth. A sackcloth. It, it, could very well be from, um, you know, earthquakes, interruptions. You know, you remember, yeah, many of you, Mount St. Helens, when interrupted, and just think about what that did. It literally turned the area, the, the, the regional area, the closer you were to it, the darker it got. You couldn't see the sun even because of the ash. And you think about that happening across the world, you think about what all that happened. Do you see the recent one? Uh, I can't remember what ocean it was in, but there was an earthquake, and then you see that cloud that come up. I don't know. It was pretty fascinating to me. Uh, What's that? I think it was, yeah. So we have these cataclysmic events that God is allowing to take place. We see in verse 13, the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. So we have meteorites, uh, space particles, uh, shooting stars on direct impact direct trajectory to the earth. I mean, that stuff coming in, it just, you can't even grasp, honestly. You start thinking, man. Um, gosh, there's a crater outside of town here. A couple of them. You start looking at some of the craters and they start calculating what they're caused by. And you start, if you look into some of that, because I was studying it this week, and you're like, man, that's stuff that's way over my head. And some of the things, and some of the deep and massive impact, one in Siberia that took out miles What's it going to be like when that's raining down on this planet? And He gives us a picture. Um, have you ever shaken the branches of an apple tree late in harvest season? You ever done that? You just when you do it, it's like it rains apples. So that's uh, if you would. That's uh, it gives you the big picture on the fig picture because that's when he's shaking the figs, they just, they just fall like crazy. And you think about it, You could, a good picture for us here with the deciduous trees we have and the weather we have in the fall, you can shake a branch sometimes and it just rains down all these leaves all at once right then. That's the picture that's being painted about this calamity and these things that are taking place in verse 14, when the sky receded as a scroll, when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, every mountain and island was moved out of its place. I'm not sure on the sky receded. I'm still working that one out because the wording there, like it opened up. It's not like it got covered, like you couldn't see up through it, but it's speaking of it opening up, not from the previous airborne particulate, but just there's just something there, like a scroll when it's rolled up. You know, you had this, because they read the scrolls were horizontal. So as you, as you rolled it out and then rolled it up, now you, there's, isn't that interesting to kind of chew on, okay, how did that, what did that look like? How was that? The bottom line is just showing God has control over everything. Verse 14, we see it's rolled up. Let's, let's turn, if you would, to go, me, go to the left, out of the New Testament, into the Old Testament, and let's take a look. So, in your Old Testament, you have like Daniel and then Hosea. Uh, we're going to stop at Joel. So in Joel, we'll look at chapter 2. I'm not. Presenting to you that this, in Je- Joel chapter two, verses 10 and 11, is the event we're looking. I'm just using this to show God has stated this before, that He, he has control over, over this the, actually more specifically, the universe. So we see in Joel chapter two, verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before His army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Go with me, if you would, to the right a little more. You have Hosea, Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, actually Habakkuk, and then Zephaniah. In Zephaniah, you guys, when was the last time you guys read Zephaniah? Did you even know there was a book called Zephaniah? So there's Hosea, Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So if you put it to kind of like a, some might figure out how to figure out, okay? <laughs> so in Zephaniah chapter 1, notice in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter, that, the mighty, that there the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Fortified cities and high towers represent man's abil- or attempt. Think Tower of Babel, man's attempt to run the world and do things their own way. It's the glimpse we just read of what, what God says and what he can do moving back now to revelation in chapter 15 or chapter 1 5 6 now verse 15 i want to wrap this up and finish with some other passages in chapter 5 verse 15 continuing as we read along the kings of the earth and the great men the rich men the commanders the mighty men every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains so, we have a tilt right now. The spirit of this age is rushing toward communistic rule. agreed? I mean, we're just seeing this 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 really weird theory of one group runs everything and owns everything for everyone, and the thought would be that group would be nice people and be just looking out for everyone. totally like demonic in logic and in practice, quite honestly. And so full communism will not happen as we see here. The, 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 the diversity of rule and classes are still taking place. So I mentioned that too because I'm not just, I mean, I'm just looking at what's happening in Australia and, and in Canada and in many other places where there's this tilt towards a common thought, a, a Marxism, a, a communistic type approach. And it seems to be picking up speed. And many are saying that we're going to become under that type of global rule. But I just have to look at this text and go, I don't know. It speaks of in the tribulation period, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, all these people. And you notice what the powerful, the rich, the elite, and every man will be doing? Trying to escape. They're trying to escape what we know to be from this text the wrath of the Lamb. The very ones, you know, whether it be of a Zuckerberg type last name or Gates or you just fill in the blank, whether it's a techno dude or a political person, whatever, they don't need God. They despise the fact that these lower level human beings would be so weak and they need such a crutch to lean on that they go to religion. Most all governments. You know, what, you know what they have in common with religion? They like them because so they know how to use them. They're favorable to most, most religions. They use them. They know how. You and I have tenets and principles and things that we hold to. And governments, you know, people study that. Power hounds study that. And then they know how to manipulate you and I. Here, think of this particular time of year. Election year. Election season. The most reprobate, pathetic person morally and ethically suddenly is showing up in churches and asking you to vote for them because they know how to use it. They'll just use religion. They have no regard for the living God. They, they would say all roads lead to heaven. All, all, whatever you believe, as long as you believe with passion, that's okay because they use it. And the very people who reject Christ and live in the power and the, and the affluence of this world Will be trying to crawl under a rock and realizing that they had everything and they had nothing, nothing. And so I, I say that because you know it's just a challenge sometimes to see the the powerful and the and the mighty roll over people and just reduce whole classes and whole ethnicities just and yet you know their day is coming. I don't say that going ah good get them. They say that, man, they, they don't even get it. They're, going, they're right here. They will hide under the rocks. So as we see there, verse 17, well, 16 as well. You know, They fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the, that's what they're saying. Isn't it interesting that they're declaring this? I don't think John's mentioning it because he knows we would know who he's speaking of. I believe that's their words, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. The ones who denied God are at this sad state going to recognize that there is a God. And the very ones that rejected Christ because they didn't like the the lamb theory, you know what I'm saying? Because the lamb is not exactly the symbol of power and might. And so they had this, this attitude, and guess what? They're trying to hide for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand it? no one. This chapter detailing the beginning of the great tribulation is a seven-year period spoken of in Daniel chapter 9 and in other places. It's clearly described as God's wrath poured out on the earth. Let's wrap this up by going over to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In verse seventeen, I'm just going to catch you the short version. You can go back back and catch the context. People were concerned that their loved ones had fallen, but had died, passed away before the return of Jesus. He gives some, Paul gives some clarity, and then we see in verse seventeen. Then we who are alive and remain shall be raptured. That that's where the word comes from. It's English, you know, from Latin, and you know, to the, our English translation, we is using the word "caught up." to gather with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The comfort would come because you're not going through the tribulation. The comfort would come because you didn't miss his return. Now let's continue in this context. Verse 1 of chapter 5 of First Thessalonians. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and hope, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. There. Verse 12, 11, therefore, comfort one another, each other, as, and edify one another, just as you are doing. So you understand what we're reading here is to a church that Paul visited, according to the book of Acts, just maybe three four weeks. And they know the day of the Lord. He taught end times, you know, this, this eschatology is the term that's used. He taught that to a, a group of young believers in a very small church because they knew that and he's reminding them hey listen this is how it's going down you will not go through the wrath because the wrath of the lamb is what we read about in the first chapter or in chapter 6 of Revelation and this says that we will not, we did not he did not appoint us to wrath so we won't be in that wrath we will be removed prior to that wrath being poured out so how should we live one last passage if you would and that's Second Peter, we're closing up with this one. Second Peter chapter 3, to the right of where you were. Let me read this and we'll go right into prayer. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Oh, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray, God, Lord, that you speak to us. Clearly, in that last passage, how should we be living in the times that we live in? And Lord, may you clarify that to each one of us. If there's an area we need to repent, turn from, and turn to you, Lord, show us that and give us the courage to to repent. If there's an area we need more faith, greater faith and understanding, we pray for that gift of faith, of wisdom and knowledge and discernment to know your word. We pray, Lord, for soft hearts hearts that can be formed and shaped by you for your purposes in these last days, hearts that, God, could be filled with your spirit. Fill us, O God, that as we speak with a neighbor or a coworker or a relative or whomever we may bump into or be led to, may we have words of kindness, compassion, clarity, love, and truth that we would be your instruments to reach a world that needs you so bad. And so, Lord, equip us in this day, in this hour, for your purposes, for your glory. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen, amen, all right. Well, next week we'll do uh, Revelation 4. Just kidding. We're we're gonna do seven on Sunday, and then I'll tell you where we'll be after that, after Sunday afternoon. So, God bless you, thanks for joining.